I realize that by recording this episode, I may be infinitesimally reducing my own success rate at getting grants in the future, but I think it's worth it to talk about these issues in the open. This episode is about writing competitive grant proposals. I have uh, received two or more grants from the NSF, NIH, and Department of Defense in the United States, and uh, have also reviewed for those particular agencies two or more times. I think that the fundamental core of writing a good grant proposal is applicable to any agency and actually uh, any international agency as well. How does your career stage affect the grants you apply to? There are two real phases in applying for grants. There are the early, there's the early investigator stage, so the young investigator awards that you apply to in your first, say, five years uh, when you start your faculty position, and then there are after that there's kind of a valley of death where you don't get anything. At least I didn't get anything for three years after I kind of aged out of the early investigator stage and then my proposals went into the uh, the main pool with everyone else that has been applying to them for applying to proposal to grants for 30 to 40 years. What is the best way to get a grant funded? There is, uh, there's no silver bullet. So there's, um, there are great ideas that get bad scores. You catch a reviewer on a bad day or a bad week. That actually does happen. Sometimes they might have a score to settle with your advisor. Hopefully the panel discussion will weed out some of those uh, problems, but sometimes they persist. Um, and uh, bad projects do get funded. So sometimes you'll, you know, you'll see at, at the at the bottom of a paper that you didn't think very much about that oh all this paper had funding from you know whatever agency and you're and you're saying well how did that get funded and my project did not get funded so it does you know these things happen and it's kind of subjective so there's no silver bullet you can't just say like if you do these things you definitely will get this grant because nothing is ever a hundred percent successful but your goal should be maximizing the probability of a successful outcome also, don't take rejection personally because it's going to happen like 80 to 90% of the time, especially when you're first starting out. The first thing you need to do is to generate a good idea. The idea for the grant, the fundamental core of the grant, is by far the most important thing. So a lot of times we worry about, you know, moving pixels over and figures and making sure that we're exactly, you know, have exactly the right margins and word count and no widows at the end of paragraphs and all these things, you know, are great to, to satisfy our kind of anal retentive instincts, but they don't really, they can't really correct for a, uh, an idea that doesn't, that doesn't arouse any, you know, scientific excitement on the part of the reviewers. With stale ideas, reviewers are more likely to find uh, gotcha type criticisms, um, like not enough preliminary data, um, didn't call, uh, cite all the right literature. Basically, they'll have these ex post facto rationalizations when really it's just the idea didn't excite them. So there needs to be an, an exciting um, uh, idea at the core that where you've identified a significant problem, you have a creative solution to it, and it is believable that you uh, as an investigator at the institution that 
you are at have the right resources to bring this, uh, this project to a successful outcome. Conversely, if a reviewer likes a proposal, then a lot of these sort of uh, anal retentive, um, uh, you know, hedge trimming that you did to get it, you know, exactly perfect, they're going to ignore all of that. In fact, they might even misinterpret some of the experiments you propose in a way that actually benefits you. Um, so I've had this happen where it's some experiment that they describe in the summary statement is not something that I actually quite proposed, um, but they were kind Kind of excited by the idea so they gave me the benefit of the doubt for that so the idea can really sort of whitewash a lot of these little things that we tend to to take very seriously uh, as we're writing that aren't really that important What's better, single investigator or multiple investigator grants? Single investigator grants are increasingly hard to get and in NSF it's still you know pretty likely to get a single investigator grant. In the NIH, however, it's really difficult. Um, collaborative grants are really attractive because a lot of the new new knowledge to be created is actually at the interface between established disciplines. If you're going to collaborate with somebody, it's important that the collaboration not feel forced. So a lot of times, particularly in um, in medical applications, you might have somebody, like you might have an engineer come up with some solution that they don't have a problem for, and then they kind of search through their medical school to find somebody, the medical personnel kind of signs off and sends in the biosketch and, uh, and they're part of the team, but they didn't really contribute, and it just looks like a forced uh, collaboration, not something that really has, that's really uh, epitomizes complementarity. And sometimes uh, engineers um, in particular have a problem where they have hammers, but they're just looking for nails. How do you come up with a fundable idea? The best way to generate new ideas is to start early and write notes to yourself. And these could be in the form of a notepad app on your phone or email yourself. So if you email yourself to then later transfer those notes, uh, you know, it could be in the middle of the night, you have some great idea. Um, you know, email it yourself. 99% of the time, you're going to look at the note and a day later, you're going to decide that it was not a good idea, but it's always best to start somewhere. A great tool is to expose your ideas to criticism when the cost is low. So subject your ideas to conversational pressure of people that you're not afraid of embarrassing yourself in front of. So these could be colleagues you go to lunch with or to coffee with, or they could be colleagues from grad school or or, uh, or postdoc or undergrad uh, or your old advisors and maybe uh, email them, call them up and just run your ideas by them. Don't, you don't even have to say that you're thinking about uh, writing a grant about this. Just uh, see what the reaction is because these people are, uh, are professionals too and they might be able to anticipate some of the most common criticisms or just something they say may dissuade you from pursuing that as, a, as, a, as an idea 
When you're crafting your idea, it's really important that it find the right home. So this could be at the programmatic level, or it could even be at the agency level. Um, and you want to make sure that the people that the people to whom your proposal will be routed are the ones that will give it the most receptive reading. And the best way to do that is to figure out if the granting mechanism that you are applying to has funded ideas of the type that you are proposing. So the best way to do that is to go to the NSF website or equivalent and look at what has been funded through this project. Um, and NIH, for example, has the projectreporter.nih.projectreporter.nih projectreporter.nih.gov that will give you a rundown of the projects by PI, by start date, by funding, and lots of other um, identifying information. Um, and you can even access the public abstracts using these, uh, these services, which are very, uh, very useful. Should you talk to the program manager ahead of time? I have a couple of anecdotes about this when it didn't work particularly well for me. I can never quite get the timing right as to when is the best time to approach a program manager. So early on, I think this was my start of my third year, um, I submitted a proposal, but it was about a week before the due date. Uh, and I was going to be in Washington, D.C., so I scheduled a meeting with this program manager. And we had a, a good conversation. I didn't ask anything specifically about uh, about a, a, the proposal that I submitted because it was too late to do anything. And I actually thought that by talking to him after I submitted the proposal, um, it you know it would reduce the 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 op the perception of a conflict because there was nothing that I could do. It was already submitted. So on the due date, I got a phone call from this particular program manager saying that I was trying to seek an unfair advantage from the by speaking to him uh, and I assured him that there was nothing I could do uh, and that I was really just interested in uh, you know in understanding the scope of the program for future proposals so maybe this was a, a beginner's uh, error on my part but then um, a few months later uh, for a different agency I hadn't even thought about what I was going to propose, but I just uh, I emailed a program manager saying I was going to be in Washington D.C. and wondering if uh, if they wanted to meet with me, and they said that um, it would be uh, unethical to meet with me in advance of the of the the deadline, which wasn't for another like two months. Don't let the program manager discourage you. Um, if they say that this is not quite in the scope or to, you know, tell you to do something based on an email or a, a conversation at a conference or even in a white paper, um, they don't know what you're going to put in the proposal and they don't know how it's going to review, although they do have some experience. You know, what are the odds that you could explain it in kind of a nervous short email as well as you could in a 15-page proposal? So another scenario is when I submitted a proposal, it got reviewed, but ultimately declined, and I rewrote the proposal the following year, submitted it to the same 
program and it got desk rejected by the program manager and the program manager assured me that they tried to find a, uh, a new home for it but were not able to find a new home for it and you know tough luck it was up to me so um, because I had this proposal I worked really hard on it I found another program myself I don't know if they talked to this program manager or not I sent it in there and it received a favorable score and was ultimately funded. And this is in the same agency. So don't let them discourage you. They don't know based on the email you send everything that's in the proposal. Um, so take it for what it's worth. How many times do you have to submit a proposal before it gets funded? It is really important to iterate. It's pretty rare to get a proposal funded on the first try. My postdoc advisor told me no proposal ever goes to waste, and she meant this in a few different ways. One is that uh, you can always resubmit, take the reviewer's comments to heart, and, and resubmit. You can also dice up the proposal. So sometimes the criticisms are this is too much stuff to propose in one grant, uh, and it is possible to take the aims or the tasks and to develop them into their own proposals. And, and I had a case a couple of years ago where a big proposal that I wrote uh, was deemed uh, too, you know, too much here, not enough preliminary data, the usual stuff, and I took the aims and resubmitted them uh, elsewhere, and one of them actually did get funded um, to, a, uh, to a mechanism that was a little bit more modest, I would say, but you know, the proposal did not go to waste. We got something out of it. It's also possible because you did a lot of research to write the proposal that it could become the basis of a review article or a mini review article. Uh, I've had cases in both, both senses where I had written something that was rejected turned it into a review and then totally rewrote the proposal so there was no like plagiarism um, and then another case the a proposal I wrote was so badly um, ripped apart that the that the language from that basically became a mini review article how do you go about writing the text of the grant the goal of the writing is not to make yourself look smart or to give every good idea you've ever had, every bit of preliminary data you've ever had. Uh, the, the goal is to delight the audience. And it's almost true that if you delight the thinking audience with your, uh, with your acumen, your good idea, the the puzzle that you are proposing, the clarity of your of your of your prose, it is much more likely that they are going to go into the panel meeting as your advocate. So, who are your readers? Your readers are going to be maybe two to five panelists plus the program manager or a scientific review officer. Every sentence needs to delight the reader. The proposal is a psychology experiment designed to bring the reader over to your way of thinking so that they can talk about you in as positive a light as possible to the other panelists and to the program manager. What you should do is teach the reader your topic, set up a puzzle, 
and show how your proposal solves the puzzle. One of the surest ways to delight the reader is to make them feel smart. You want them to be a fan of your work and go to bat for your idea with the panel. So be as clear as possible. Use short words. Uh, you know, if it's if it's a normal English word, try to keep it to four syllables or less. Of course, there are other words that we rec recognize as being simple words, even though there are a lot of syllables, like the word automatically, which is five syllables. Um, but in general, don't reach for the thesaurus. Don't try to sound smart, you know, speak in a, write in as transparent of prose as possible. Also use short sentences. So 20 words is a good length for a sentence. Definitely not 40 words and uh, try to keep your, your 30 word sentences to a minimum. Then there's a question of to jargon or not to jargon, and this is actually the subject of debate among really serious people. So there's an idea that if some of your reviewers don't understand what you're talking about, then they may assume that you have more competence in the topic than you actually do. So there's a tendency to use big words and jargon to uh, to increase the perceived scholarly impact. And where does this idea come from? Well, there's a lot of bad scholarly writing that's written in academies, uh, what Steven Pinker in his book would call uh, academies. And this uh, strategically over time is a bad way to approach a grant proposal. In fact, I actually had a short email exchange with Steven Pinker himself about this, and I'll read a little bit of my, uh, my email to him. I have a suspicion that some degree of incomprehensibility in a document such as a grant proposal is occasionally rewarded by reviewers. I suspect that experiments described too lucidly are regarded as too simple or obvious and thus not worthy of funding, while a different proposal describing similar experiments but described esoterically are given credibility by the jargon. Academies could also have the effect of masking poor experimental design. In a proposal written with a transparent style, however, the defects in the methodology are detected easily. I do not have data to support this hypothesis, and it would be difficult to test. And in other contexts, uh, I have, for example, noticed that a uh, that department seminar is delivered so that 99% of the audience understands 99% of the content are sometimes regarded as unimpressive because sometimes clarity suggests obviousness. And uh, I got a reply from Steven Pinker, and I won't uh, read the reply verbatim because I didn't ask for permission, but basically he said that this fear is overblown and that clarity in prose is basically always regarded by reviewers as a sign of, uh, of intelligence and care and you have deburdened them from extracting ideas from, uh, from uh, opaque prose. Uh, and he admits the, the fact that it's possible in some circumstances that obscure prose can be used to bluff, uh, but strategically this is actually a bad, a bad idea to use this intentionally. So um, for better or worse, uh, everything that I, uh, that I try to write, um, I'm 
quite sure I, use, I explained in the simplest way I know how. How does funding at NSF work? So the key word for NSF is transformative. What the reviewer wants to see and what the program manager is trying to do is to uh, create a new field. Uh, they really support uh, wild and crazy ideas. They are oriented toward discovery-driven science in general, and this is to contrast the NSF with some of the other agencies that I'll discuss in a moment. So proof of concept helps, but extensive preliminary data are generally not necessary in the same way that they are in an NIH R01 proposal. So each proposal gets at least three reviewers, including the lead reviewer, and the lead reviewer uh, reads the proposal a few weeks ahead of time, hopefully not on the plane on the way there, um, ideally at least a couple days ahead of time. Um, and the lead reviewer introduces the proposal to the panel. And the panel consists of maybe 12 to 15 members. And while they have access to the proposal, they won't, the other panelists probably won't have read it. There is a scribe reviewer. The scribe reviewer's job is to summarize the panel discussion. There are uh, one or more additional reviewers as well uh, that contribute to the discussion. Now, anyone in the room can contribute to the discussion or ask questions. The program manager in NSF has a, a lot of discretion over the type of panels that are used and whether panels are used. So some program managers so some program managers don't use panels and do everything remotely. Uh, that is by email. Of course, right now during COVID, everything is remote. So then proposals, uh, when the program manager gets the critiques back from the panelists, they are ranked from highest to lowest based on the submitted critiques. So those are excellent, very good, good, fair, and poor with some hybridization possible. So then the panelists have the explicit job of making funding recommendations in their critiques. And then the program manager makes the final decision taking into account the scientific review, but also programmatic, strategic, and budgetary considerations. How does the NIH system differ? So NIH, in contrast, separates the scientific evaluation from the funding consideration. So there are really two, uh, two groups involved in the evaluation of a, procedure, of, a, of a proposal. One is the Center for Scientific Review. The other is the ICs, or the Institutes and Centers. The Center for Scientific Review does just that. They review the, uh, the proposals, they generate the critiques, and so forth. In reviewing an NIH proposal, the reviewers will be asked to score the proposal based on the five review criteria, and those are significance, approach, innovation, investigator, and environment. So each reviewer is instructed to score each proposal based on those criteria from a one to nine scale. And it's like golf. So the lower the score, the better. There is a sixth score. And the sixth score is by far the most important. And that is the overall impact score. Strictly speaking, the reviewers are directed not to make the impact score, simply the mean of the five 
criterion scores. And the reason is because the significance may outweigh the, uh, the environment. So uh, the impact score is probably going to be within the range established by the five criterion scores, but it will not be an average of the five criterion scores. So you want to make sure when writing a proposal that you establish the five review criteria as explicitly as possible. The significance is this. The approach is this. Investigators are strong because of this. The environment is strong because it's has there's evidence of support for the investigators. Uh, in the past. Um, the innovation is strong uh, based on prior literature. Um, so if you can point the reviewer toward these particular statements that you can define your own range if your arguments are good, and of course your arguments have to be good. One thing I want to say about an NIH grant versus an NSF grant is the NIH mechanism is it has to, this goes without saying, but it has to have health relevance, right? Um, so it can't be a purely discovery-oriented uh, project in the same way that, uh, that NSF is. That said, there are two principal types of funding mechanisms, and one is more exploratory than the other. So the R21 is a two-year grant for exploratory research, and that is a six-page research strategy plus a specific aims page. The specific aims page is kind of like the technical abstract um, that, uh, that is very important to set the tone for the uh, for the rest of the proposal. So that's the R21. The R01 also has a, a specific aims page. It's 12 pages for the research strategy, and it is a five-year grant for developing an, uh, an idea that's already been established or proven using preliminary data or rigor. There are some other, uh, there are a smattering of other types of mechanisms within NIH, but Perhaps the most common ones, um, particularly for young investigators, uh, are the director's high-risk, high-reward awards, like the Early Independence Award, which is for postdocs or uh, senior graduate students who want to skip the postdoc. Uh, there's the the NIH Director's New Innovator Award. Then there's the, the Transformative Research Award, which is basically like an R01, except that the high-risk, high-reward nature is rewarded uh, in the sense that you don't need uh, extensive preliminary data, um, although the budget and timeline and formatting is similar to a regular R01. And then there's the Pioneer Award, which is usually awarded to established investigators um, to explore an idea of exceptionally uh, uh, lasting impact or perceived exceptionally lasting impact. So when you're submitting your proposal, first you get the you find the FOA funding opportunity announcement, um, and then you want to tailor it toward a particular institute and study section because you get to suggest the uh, the study section and the institute they don't have to follow your suggestion um, but this is an important part of seeing that your proposal gets the right people to read it so uh, the in terms of study sections there are 
over a hundred study sections that serve all of the institutes. So for example, uh, cell cellular and molecular technologies might serve programs within National Institute of General Medical Sciences or National Cancer Institute. Um, but if it involves cellular and molecular technologies, then it goes there and then it's later routed back to the funding institute. The study section rosters are, are published and the study sections themselves consist of some number of standing members which have some fixed term and then some number of individuals who rotate in and out. Each reviewer is given maybe 8 to 12 proposals to read. The critiques are sent to the scientific review officer and the uh, and then the panel meets. And the panel uh, consists of the entire study section, maybe it's 30-ish members. And basically this works like a trial where the three reviewers behave as the lawyers. And if they liked it, they are a def they're a defense attorney. If they didn't like it, they are a prosecutor. And then the rest of the study section is like the jury. Uh, there are two people sort of at the top of the food chain here. One is the uh, the chair of the study section, who is actually a member, a voting member of the study section, and they kind of um, get the the review moving along. They uh, they uh, cut off discussion if it becomes like a conference, which sometimes it does. Uh, and then importantly, they write the summary statement. So they write the statement that summarizes the discussion. The other person at the top of the food chain is the scientific review officer, who at this point has been the reviewer's primary point of contact and who assembled the study section. And they do not make scientific arguments during the uh, review process, but rather they discuss or they can guide the discussion based on what is or is not admissible during the discussion and are the expert in procedure, uh, procedural aspects of the review process. Uh, I didn't mention that only the top 50% of, of scored reviews get discussed and then the worst two words in the English language for a uh, biomedical researcher are not discussed and that's what happens to the proposals that don't that uh, don't make it to the discussion. So at the beginning of the discussion, each reviewer gives a score from one to nine that is their impact score. So you get three scores that define this initial range. Then after the whole discussion and after the panel summary is read, the reviewers give their updated scores, which could change as a result of the, of the discussion. So then that those three scores now define the range. And then everybody on the panel, remember these are like, the, this is the jury, gets to vote with a score. And this is a silent vote, uh, but those individuals that vote outside the range must identify themselves. And if they vote outside the range for a reason that has not already been articulated during the discussion, they have an opportunity to say why they're voting outside the range. So 
In terms of writing a successful proposal, it's really important that you define your own criterion scores to the extent possible. And to me, that is identifying the significance, approach, innovation, investigator, and environment and strengths therein as explicitly as possible and as early as possible. So to me, that means putting these criteria in the specific games page and then hammering them home over and over because that will define the range of the impact score chosen by your three reviewers and then the the three reviewers impact scores define the range of scores given by the rest of the panel so that score uh, one to nine are then averaged and multiplied by 10 and that becomes the impact score the other score that you might get is the percentile and that is the percentile within the study section neither metric in itself will actually tell you whether or not the proposal is going to get funded maybe under scores under 40 are are good uh, under 30 are better um, but really the funding decision is not made until those reviews get routed to the program officer, program director within the institute and center, then they undergo a uh, council review, which decides based on the evidence of the scientific merit and also programmatic and strategic and budgetary considerations, what proposals will be funded. Of course, the lower your score, the higher the chances for funding, but there are other considerations. How does funding at the Department of Defense differ? The last department that I want to talk about is the Department of Defense. So in the U.S., this includes the uh, Army, Navy, and Air Force uh, research offices. More so than NSF or NIH, the program officer has a lot of, uh, of discretion as to what uh, projects are funded within their program's portfolio. So while they still use a peer review system, those reviews are, uh, you know, at the discretion of the of the program manager whether or not they are released. Um, and in this case, it's really important to reach out to a program manager um, well ahead of time. Um, some ways to do this are to uh, are to attend program review meetings, which are usually free and usually open to the public, depending on space. Um, the problem is they're not publicized, so you have to know who's in the program. Uh, then, of course, you want to contact the program manager for permission to attend. And if there's space, they will probably say uh, they'll probably say yes. So that is by far the best way to see the breadth of research happening in a particular program within a DOD uh, funding agency. Um, the issue of, uh, so I think some people mistakenly think that a DOD grant is not basic science, it has to be engineering, that's really not true. Um, ideally, a DOD grant is written with the same attention to the basic science issues as an NSF grant um, with some interest to the particular office that you are applying to more or less explicitly stated but it's not as if you have to you know design a new soldier suit or whatever and have it deliverable that's more like darpa i don't have any experience with darpa so i'm not going to talk about uh, that agency in particular 
So that's it. Uh, I hope I said at least one useful thing here. Good luck in your proposals, and I will see you next time.